Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning for the second time, Jeremy Courtney. How are you, man? Hey, man, I'm well. Where are you today? I'm home in Iraq. What, what city are you in? Uh, we live north of Baghdad in an area called Suleimania. There's no way I can even try to pronounce that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's based <laughs> off the right word on. based off the word Suleiman, or what you probably know as Solomon. Oh, Solomon, which explains why you're so wise because you live in Solomon's land. Hey, uh, we there it is, there it is. Uh, but you actually went to high school the same place my wife went to high school, Leander, Texas, right? I forgot about that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I, uh, my daughters are in Leander ISD, so the great education which forms you into the man that you are today hopefully is forming my daughters into the same kind of women. Uh, better hair, of course, but uh, same kind of character <laughs> as you. Touche. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you have a new book out, and uh, I was excited uh, to get you back on the podcast. And I think I emailed this to you, but the first time you're on the podcast, I had a feeling that I haven't had after, and I've done a couple hundred, 400 maybe at this point, 400 episodes, uh, and your episode haunted me more than any other episode I've ever had. And I don't mean well, that like in a bad, not like a, a scary ghost kind of like you're uh, over my shoulder all the time, but I feel like it, there's just residue from that one that stayed with me for a while, and so I'm glad that we get back on the uh, the old Skype to talk more. Not that I'm going to get rid of that haunting, but I feel like there is uh, there's more here. Well, I, I need to hear more about that. We can either get into that on this call or see where it takes us, but that sounds interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a story of, like, who you are and what you're doing. And, uh, okay, so, so the new book is uh, Love Anyway. I'm looking at a PDF. I think that's the title of it, right? Love Anyway? Love Anyway, yep. Okay. And uh, the, the book, it, it tells your story. It, and it's the, the story that we talked about to some degree last time, uh, one of the things that I've discovered on podcasts, especially if I'm doing a podcast that's not connected to a book release, is often I end up talking to someone about a book one day that they are going to write. And so when we talked, I don't know, a year or two ago, I assume you were in the writing process because we talked about some of the stuff that you've since written down. Man, it must have been, my guess is that it would have been more like five or six years ago, though. That, that you wrote it or we talked? That we talked. I, really? I don't it's not been a year or two. No way. Well, okay, I've only lived in, the, in Austin for four years, and so it has to well, be less than that. Then let's go with four years ago. I think it was, it was on the long longer ago? side. I think it was on the longer side of things. Okay, now someone's going to probably research this for us, and they'll tell us who's closer to the truth. I assume it's probably you. But I assume that means you've been writing the book for, for that long, or is this just stories that have been so central to you that they make their way to the book? Yeah, I think mostly stories that are central. Um, I have been actively writing the book for two years, give or take. Maybe, okay. maybe, maybe two and yeah, two years, two and a half years, two years. And so, actively writing for you, I, I honestly have no idea what your day to day existence looks like. I assume it's a. Uh, quite a mixture of different tasks. I assume writing, you just have to hollow out that time while you're in um, armored vehicles driving around the world and performing open heart surgeries. I guess you just do that on your breaks. Is that how that works? Well, maybe you should back people up a little bit and just give some context for 
for where we are and you know no just let him kind of just guess i feel like that's that's more exciting (laughs) um active writing for me yeah it, it looked like various things over the course of two years i mean i live in iraq uh some of those years i mean basically since i started actively writing we were you know coming out of the most intense days and months of the the isis overthrow of about a third of the country genocide and then the fight against isis to get them out so um sort of right on the heels of that i picked up writing which um which proved to be a very healing, cathartic kind of process. It, it turns out I had taken on more water during those traumatic four years of dealing with ISIS than I had probably realized. I had, I had taken on more trauma, to be precise, and um, was maybe in some ways drowning. Uh, hmm. So the writing, what, what started out being, you know, writing a book, for you all in many ways took a a unexpected turn and became very much about writing a book for myself to get well and to get healed and i think then was able to end up being an even better book for you for the world yeah yeah yeah. and and it is a a good book i mean it's it's written well the the uh, the writing's good it's compelling it's it's fast um but I definitely can see that there is a cathartic element to the writing process for this book for you. Uh, as someone who's done some writing, I find that I end up writing more for myself than other people uh, in terms of like I'm processing my stuff on the paper. And there's, there's uh, obviously therapy is very important, but there is some therapeutic aspect to writing. And one of the things that I assume was, uh, was a subject that needed some catharsis, I, I mean, you say so directly in the book, was the role of I guess, the senior pastor of the church that, that you came out of. And I, I assume Pastor Davidson is um, not actually his last name, right? Is Correct. it his real last name? <laughs> no. Okay. No, it's not. Oh, yeah. Uh, w- which y- y- you couldn't do that. I mean, that's, uh, that wouldn't be very generous. Um, but uh, you, you write about the relationship you had with the founding the, or the pastor of the church that sends you off. And as a uh, senior pastor in Texas, while I don't align with him theologically, I can see how if I've been doing this for 30 years and someone, uh, a young person left to do what you did, that it would it would be a, a tough pill to swallow. And I can see how that's just a, a very complicated relationship that never is going to be easy to, to kind of migrate through for, for anyone. Well, yeah, a couple of things on that, I guess. Um, so with regard to the catharsis and the writing, um, yeah, I think, I think the latter stages of the book uh, were written, in my case, in the, in the latter stages of the process. So mm-hmm. um, some of those early chapters were written two years ago. Um, some of the latter chapters were written two months ago, you know, more or less. And... As a result, I think I'm in a much healthier place to wrap up the story, to begin kind of bringing a, an integrated view of the whole thing. And yeah, I think some of the early pages reflect an attempt to, you know, kind of figure out where I'm going in all this. Mm-hmm. If I'd had another six months on my runway, I'd, I probably would have gone back and rewritten some early parts of the book and, and just 
made sure that there was a little more, you know, maybe generosity in some of the early, earliest parts of the book as well. Because I had, I had started laying those down when, when I was clearly still in a, a certain place of pain. But I guess to just address the, the specific dynamic that you're talking about here. Um, yeah, so this guy's responsible, kind of spiritual leader uh, influence in my life to be sure right as I'm coming into adulthood, right as I come out of college, right as I get married, which happens to coincide with September 11th terror attacks. And uh, this guy is in part responsible for commissioning us as missionaries into the Muslim world. Um, So when you characterize him as, you know, kind of being a tough pill to swallow, you're sort of you're latching on to a latter part of the story. In the early part of the story, he's, mm-hmm. I, w- I, would, I would say he's a very eager partner in sending us off into the world of missions, Christian evangelism and church planting among Muslims in the post-9-11 world. And, you know, a lot of the book and a lot of the story early on centers around my eagerness and willingness to participate in that and then the way it all kind of comes crumbling down for me and the, the system comes crumbling down. And as a result of the system crumbling a little bit, my relationship with him starts to get a little bit strained. And your, is it your father and grandfather who are in ministry of some sort? Yeah, correct. I assume that that would cause your connection to that pastor to take on uh, a greater significance or importance than than many of people who don't have a connection to a pastor in the family? Uh, perhaps. I, I mean, comparing it to others doesn't seem that interesting or helpful to me, but I, I, I'm certain there are ways in which I compared them to one another, both, both holding him up in higher esteem, probably at times, and then at times kind of judging him against my grandfather, and my, my father, you know, uh, yeah. against, against whom he couldn't measure up, you know. I probably played it both ways whenever it was convenient or seemed appropriate. Yeah, so here, here's a line from the book. Um, but what I really couldn't understand was why my pastor was tearing me apart for taking his preaching seriously. And I think that line encapsulates what you're just trying to say that uh the tough pill to swallow was later part of the relationship obviously there had to be a level of respect and uh you know trust in him early on that like you said that you took his preaching so seriously that you would do this but you go off to let me i got another quote over here uh but you you go off and this is you later in the book um uh, the more i saw of the world the more i dreaded going back to texas now in their defense I was the one who had changed. I left. They stayed right where they'd always been, going about their daily lives the same way we'd done together before they sent me out. Now, that isn't just about him. That's also about, I guess, a a committee or something, a missions committee, I guess. Um, But that does speak to you left on the same page with him, but something happened while you're over there that uh, that caused the tension in the relationship. And that, and to say there's any way to replicate what you experienced in Iraq, getting to, to befriend and to know the stories, uh, I mean, that would be almost impossible to replicate for, for anyone who hasn't walked in those shoes. A hundred percent. And I think that's, 
that's that's really the uh, that's part of the conclusion that I end up with, you know, over the course of this 15 year journey is that uh, it's kind of a, um, yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag in some ways. On the one hand, he sends me out into the world to do this thing. I accept the call. I accept the charge. I go into the world to do this thing. But the very act of obeying, the very act of being the compliant one, the very act of doing the thing almost guarantees that I change while everyone else who doesn't do the thing, even though they're the ones commissioning and pushing us and sending us to do the thing, they more or less stay the same. Uh, And so in some ways our course was set from the beginning, you know, like from the moment you take that first step away from home, you're almost destined, I mean, you are, you're destined to end up in a different spot, destined to end up a different person. And so, you know, the conflict is sort of baked in from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, your graduate degree, not in ministry, it's in, what was it in? Uh, no, I do have a graduate degree in, I don't know, some form of international studies that's largely centered around interculturalism, and there was an element of theology and things like that involved. Oh, okay. What was your... Uh, because I thought you had, what was your undergrad Baylor. in? Yeah, Baylor, and then I have an undergrad in business. In business, okay. Mm-hmm. But, so 9-11 happens, you decide you're not going to go the way of military, but you're going to go the way of missionary. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, if 9-11 doesn't, doesn't happen, and maybe you go the business direction, and you end up on a mission board uh, 20 years later at a church, having never gone to Iraq and stayed in the business world. Um, what would you want to tell yourself as someone who, who's trying to coach missionaries who are in a different place, who don't have the same experience that you have back home on the missions board? Does it make sense? Man, it's beautiful. It's the right question in many ways. Um, whew, I mean, look, there's a part of me that wants to say, just don't do it. Don't, don't try to serve as an expert or a coach on matters that you don't know about. Uh, I don't, I don't mean that cruelly. I don't mean that judgmentally. It just now from where I sit, it just seems like the wisdom that I need to bring forth to friends engaged in this space. Just, just maybe don't do it. Just maybe opt out. Just maybe admit that it's really hard and, and possibly even traumatizing and uh, toxic to, to try and superimpose your worldview and your theology and your uh, kind of disembodied reading of tactics and strategy from across the ocean when you're not the one putting your life on the line you're not the one putting your... And when I say life on the line, it's, I think it's really important to understand that our identity in many ways feels like our whole life. So when your identity starts to change, even if you're not literally facing bombs and bullets and kidnapping and terrorist threats, when, when your identity starts to change at all, when, when you start having questions about theology or do I belong or maybe I'm more like these pagan, sinful people that I came out here to change than I thought I was, when any of that stuff starts to shift, it can feel like your whole life is at threat. 
because your life, especially at earlier stages of development, is, is so intimately entwined with your your ego and, and your sense of self. So that's one thing. Maybe just consider not. Maybe just consider don't. Um, secondarily, or or alternatively, if you if that doesn't seem like an option, or or you feel like you must, or whatever, I would just say then be humble. Um, dare to believe the people that you thought were worthy of going out into the world in your name on your behalf in the first place. If if they were worthy of being sent out, if if they were worthy of your time, money, trust, commissioning, whatever, then dare to keep believing them, especially when they come back and give you scouting reports that run afoul of everything you already believed before you sent them out in the first place. Because that's often the stuff we need to hear most. It's the counterfactuals. It's the, it's the things that challenge the status quo and the way things are. And that's where I started having my falling out was when I started giving scouting reports and updates and good faith uh, insights into the world I was seeing around me doing the work and, and it felt like I was getting rejected because now my new understanding of the world didn't accord with those people who had never left home. Yeah. Uh, the change that happens in you... Uh, would have been seen as a pretty substantial change to you know twenty two year old Jeremy or or even myself especially at that age where y- you go there and, and there's a story in the book about you getting uh, I, I guess it was a in a mosque uh, in in um, it was in, in Turkey where you go in and you're argumentative and you tell them they're all wrong and in some ways you're satisfied to take these very hospitable and generous people and kind of like get in their face and tell them how wrong they were and so that in some ways. Would it be fair to say like that's the attitude you started with and that was celebrated of telling these pagans how wrong they are? And then you get to a place where instead you're seeing these people as your brothers and brothers and sisters and it's no longer adversarial. So that must have been a major uh, whiplash for, for that congregation, especially to hear that transformation. How, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think of I, I'm thinking of that mission board and trying to think how could they prepare themselves to hear that sort of conversation and to let that be a um, something that they can be receptive to and when that is such a like you said a counterfactual statement. I'm really I'm really glad you're pressing into this particular dynamic in the book because I think it's it's really central to why I wrote the book. Um, None of this has gotten any easier. If anything, it feels like we're more divided than we were right then in the post-9-11 world. It feels like everything's gotten more strident. Twitter's made us a lot more loud. Uh, Facebook's made us a lot more algorithmically ghettoized. And our politics have pushed us further and further to the polls. So um, we're having a harder and harder time talking to one another. And we're, yeah. we're flattening each other. <laughs> The more we, we engage each other, we're flattening each other out, we're, we're tearing each other apart. The message that I really hope people take away from the book is that um, you know, what we believe about God, money, power, ethnicity, 
whose faith matters and whose doesn't, it, it has profound consequences on who lives and who dies. Not just in some eternal disembodied sense, but in the sense of like genocide, in the sense of terrorism. In the sen- and, I, and when I say terrorism, I don't just mean radical Islamist terrorism, as some people love to assert over and over again. I also mean white supremacist terrorism. You know, all these things are deeply connected and intertwined. So how could that mission board, how could that congregation have done better? Which is to say, how can many of us and our congregations today do better, be more prepared for counterfactual status reports and scouting reports? We have to diversify our experiences and the voices that we listen to. We have to get out of our echo chambers and we need a greater depth of relationship with people who are different than us. Republican, Democrat, left, right, in, out, gay, straight, Muslim, Christian, all of it. We, We all tend to keep congregating and worshiping along very limited lines and very limited worldviews. And until we break out of those tribes, until we find room at the table for more voices among us, we will not be ready for Mm -hmm. that prophetic outside voice who comes back from the journey and says, hey guys, it's not as bad as we thought it was. They're not out to get us the way that we thought they were. We're, We're not as far apart as we thought we were. We share more in common than we thought we did. We will not be prepared for that until we experience it relationally. Yep. When we talked last time, I made a comment about how, and I was assuming that the um, the attitude in Iraq about the newly elected uh, President Trump would be that there was a great deal of disdain and um, uh, animus towards him. And I made a flippant comment to you about it, just assuming you would kind of go that direction. And you responded in a counterfactual way and said, actually, you know, there's some people over here who think he's going to be the kind of person that, uh, you know, might help a conversation or might, might help in a certain way having his presence. And I, I remember leaving it going, I really didn't expect that. Didn't expect you to hear you say, and, and I'm not saying that you were, you know, putting on a Make America Great Again hat, but I do, you were saying something I was not expecting you to say because you're exper- like expressing an experience that I hadn't seen. And I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying at the beginning. If, if you trusted a person, if the, if, if the church entrusted you with resources and their support so that you go off and do a work, they have to trust that God is still at work in you even when you come back and say things that are different than what they expected to hear. If you bought into you being called for this, that, that means that you need to buy into what God is going to say through you even if it's not what you want to hear. And I think like you said, I, I think uh, social media has created echo chambers and an inability to listen and to have uh, healthy dialogue where you can genuinely listen to people who are different. And so I, I think we're, we're trying to, uh, to swim upstream on that one. But uh, again, I think your book is, is kind of pointing us in the right direction. There's a um, transition here. The, there's something you, you mentioned in the book that um, in Islam, as in Christianity, there's a common refrain of saying that that's not a real Christian. Just like in the Middle East, you say, well, that's not a real Muslim. And I found that to be very fascinating, and I think it's very indicative of something about the human nature inside all of us that we want to classify someone, oh, that's not a real person of our faith, they don't do a good job. When you hear that in Islam, when they're saying, oh, that's not a real Muslim, Muslim, uh, 
how how are you interpreting? What do you think that's saying about? I guess the, the commonality in all people, regardless of where you come from. I think it's indicative of a universal kind of tribalism, where once we have set out that our tribe is universally and exclusively right, righteous, saved, um, but somehow at the same time, we, we are not blind to the differences in our behavior or the differences in our beliefs or the differences in, you know, any number of cultural practices. Then we get to this, we, we sort of paint ourselves into these corners where we are trying to regard our differences, we're trying to acknowledge our differences without undermining our universal exclusivist claims that our group is the right one. And so what we do is we just go, well, they just aren't a legitimate Christian whatsoever. I, I see their differences and I deny them altogether. They are not real. They are not legitimate. They were never saved. Um, if someone falls away, if someone goes through a season of doubt, if someone changes their belief, if someone engages in what we deem to be a, an egregious enough political differentiation or voting differentiation or cultural differentiation, it's just easier for us to say they were never one of us or they are no longer one of us than it is to grapple with the much harder truth, which is, I believe, there is no such thing as Christianity. There is no such one thing as Islam. There is and only ever has been numerous, 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 numerous streams, each vying for their place, each claiming some kind of rightness or righteousness. Um, and that which we call orthodoxy is still not even really settled upon orthodoxy. And so rather than grapple with some sense of multiple truths, it's just easy or to deny that people who deviate from us were ever one of us or are still somehow one of us. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, it's easier to say that they're not part of the team than to deal with the fact that the team doesn't always have a unified voice on things. And it's dismissive. And it's, again, this goes back to not being able to hear different voices and opinions is that, no, we're just going it, to, it's just a, it's a bigger way of doing that. But it's hard to do that. We don't want to do that. Um, I, I feel like you did this in the book. And I, tell me if I'm right. But I feel like you capitalized the phrase, the way things are. And almost, yeah. I did, okay, you did do that. It's almost as if you kind of, um, to use like the power and principalities language of, of Paul, like you, you acknowledge them as one of the, the powers of this age of things staying the same that they are. And when we hear, dare I say, the voice of God compelling us to go to a new way, there's always going to be resistance. And, and we don't want to overcome that. And that was part of your, uh, your experience. You described a story going to like this, uh, this clandestine missionary gathering and someone says a compelling thing to you, but you're like, you know what? I, 
I don't want to push this direction because I, I like things the way things are. And you also use that same sort of capitalized phrase describing things back home at church in Texas. Who doesn't want to change because they like the, the way the way things are? How, how, first of all, I guess, how are you able to be pulled away from the way things are? And maybe that can be a picture for how all of us can, can be receptive as well. Yeah, I frame the book up largely as... Um sort of two realms or to use some good Christian language, two kingdoms or two powers uh, like you, like you hinted at Um, the way things are, which is this kind of oligarchical, tyrannical regime that controls the way things are, the way we see things, the way things work, the systems uh, that's a kingdom. That's a power, a sort of nation-state type thing that we live in. It's called the way things are. And then somewhere out beyond its borders, you might visualize this other realm, this other kingdom that lives under a different sort of reality or authority called the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Somewhere out there, you know? Um, that's sort of how it's framed up from the beginning. I, I hope that readers get, by the end, a kind of deeper meaning to it all, that mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not strictly a dualistic light versus darkness, good versus evil kind of reality. It's, it's not that you strictly leave one country and pass a border into another country. It's the deeper work, the more rewarding work, is to learn how to live in the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible while somehow still being under the occupation or the tyranny of the way things are. That's, mm-hmm. that's the deeper, harder thing. But, yeah. um, but I, don't, I don't know if we can hear that until we're ready for that message. Uh, was there a question that you asked that I kind of missed there? No, you're doing good. You got it. That was good. It's, it seems like it's the entrance into Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. Like, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. Mm. But also the kingdom of this world, that, where the, the prince of this age is still in power. And so there's this conflict that I think Jesus invites us into, to live into the kingdom, but also be aware that you are living in, in an age of what is right now, not the kingdom of God. And yeah, I, I, think, that's the, I think that's the tension for all of us. Um, and here, okay, so um, your friends, do you know uh, Jared McKenna down in Australia? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so Jared and then um, I assume you know Shane Claiborne, right? Yeah. You guys are yeah, friends? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so, so Jared's a, a friend of mine. I, I've had Shane on the podcast. I've had you on the podcast. And uh, it's like some of you, I, I'm, I'm clumping you all together. I think all of you is good people. That's, that's a good group to be in, right? That's not a... I'll, I'll take it for sure. Okay, good. Um, but like, so I'll get, uh, Jared will text me and say, hey, let's do a podcast. I'm uh, hanging off a side of a building protesting uh, the way refugees are treated uh, in Australia. Or I did a podcast with Shane and he's on a bus traveling around in the, like this, it's probably like powered by vegetable oil and he's yep. like turning gu- guns into whatever. Um, Plow, plows, I guess. Um, and you go, well, and, and obviously you're living in Iraq. And I hear these voices, and it's almost like, 
okay, you guys are calling us to something, but it seems so distant from what my life is right now that I'm, I don't have enough camping gear to hang on the side of a building. Uh, like I can't do that. Like, I don't know. I don't know anything about, uh, welding. I can't do that with guns. And sometimes the voice of, of y'all calling us to this better world, to, to living in the kingdom of God, it seems so far removed from our day-to-day life that it almost seems like it's unapplicable to, to some of us. How, how do you see roles of voices like yours um, for, for churches back in Texas? Man, I think that would make all of us so sad to hear. It makes me so sad to hear. I, I think I can speak for the three of us that we... We don't want it to feel that far out of step. We don't want it to feel that out of reach. Um, so let me see if I can just, you know, break it down or, or bring it down. None of the three of us or any number of other, like, amazing friends or activists or leaders that you could point to in, in world history, none of us got to whatever snapshot of where we are today through some kind of Herculean effort. It was, it was always just one small step at a time. Uh, and that's part of what the book is, is even meant to articulate. You know, there's no bombs going off around me until two or three chapters at the end of the book. You know, there's no face-to-face encounters with ISIS until about halfway through the book. No one dies until about three quarters of the way through the book. So, you know, it's, it's just one small step deeper and deeper and deeper into the hard stuff all of which in many ways began for me with a grandfather who preached faithfully every Sunday, with with a dad who sang and led us in worship faithfully every Sunday morning. Those were their small steps that became my legacy, that became, you know, the platform or the jumping off spot that I started on, you know, that idea of being born on third base. I I was born on third base in many ways with some of this stuff because of my grandfather, because of my dad. So let's, let's be sure we don't make this all about the individual. Uh, let's be sure that we not even make it about the generation of the people we're talking about. There's, we have a legacy that we've inherited, you know, and, and we have to think generationally if we actually want to see change. Um, mm-hmm. So to bring it home to the church in in Leander, you know, across Texas, across the U.S. Um, we got to think generationally, for one. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not going to likely radically transform systemic injustice, systemic racism, systemic bigotry, systemic power imbalance. Our, our country was built on this stuff. The patriarchy... Mm-hmm runs thick in our blood. I mean, this stuff doesn't get dismantled and a whole new way of being implemented overnight. So we got to think slow and generationally and patient in a way, to a degree. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Two, um, maybe let me offer Preemptive Love Coalition, our organization, as, as a resource. We are, we are very mindful of what you just said, that um, some of this stuff can seem far-fetched and, and hard to grasp. So we have created a program called Love Anyway Gathering. And Love Anyway Gathering is all about helping people get into the room with others in your neighborhood who are different from you. 
It's about putting a structure in place around your life, around your family, around your Sunday school group or your church, for example, uh, that says, look, we are Christian. We're thoroughly Christian. And we have no intention of not being Christian anymore. But it might be really nice to know some Muslims. We are white. We are not going to be less white at the end of this year. But it might be really good to have a lot more black friends. Mm. I have this political stance on immigration. But I inherited that from people who had that political stance on immigration. It might be really good to hear from immigrants themselves who have run for their lives and been detained in pursuit of peace and safety for their kids. So Love Anyway Gathering is about bringing these kinds of people together to the table in your neighborhood. In, in most neighborhoods, they're there. In most cities, at least, they're within reach. They're within driving distance. We just don't know how to get to each other. So let us be a resource for you on that. And through those one small steps at a time toward each other, toward relationship, that's how we get remade. And that's how we stumble into the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Yeah. Uh, so there was uh, a doctor named Kent Brantley who went to school with me in Abilene, Texas, and uh, he was the guy who got Ebola, the doctor in Africa. And yep. uh, so, so he's going back to the mission field. Uh, I think it was just announced a couple of weeks ago. But um, uh, one of uh, one of our mutual friends talked about, and I think Kent even mentioned this in his book, but he talked about how Kent has made a bunch of small decisions that no one saw that you know, from being uh, you know, yeah. a, a resident doctor who decided, hey, I'm struggling with money so that we can save up to, to do this. And so he went to his church elders and said, hey, here's my budget. Help me find a way to make a, a smaller uh, or, or more reasonable budget so I can be afforded the opportunity to later do this. And so when he gets to contract Ebola and offer the one you know, syringe of medicine to the nurse that he worked with instead of himself. That was just the continuation of all the small steps that led up to what he did. So I hear you saying the exact same thing. It's, it's all these small steps that we typically think of you making one big giant leap and that's not what happened. But like every one of us has a small step in front of us to, to move forward. Uh, but sometimes those small steps get, uh, get never taken because we get discouraged and we deal with the heartbreak of of wanting to take a step and then we see all these things around us that cause us to to want to give up our confidence totally. or give us our, our trust. And in the book, you, you tell of this guy who was like uh, your right-hand man, your, your best friend, a, a, a close family friend who turns on you. Uh, and there's no way I can pronounce his name correctly. Kochar. Okay. So he's your uh, close friend and all of a sudden something happens, turns on you. When that kind of stuff happens... Did you ever feel like, this is someone that I've invested so much in, how, how and why do I keep putting myself out for, for this kind of re- reaction? Oh, man. Look, when your right-hand guy, best friend, brother, guide through the entire you know, world turns on you, betrays you, threatens your kids, puts you in jail, you know, and literally sicks the tribal literal tribes against you in search of blood and governmental forces against you. Like it's, uh, it's certainly easy to want to give up. Um, we, um, we, we wanted to give up. We wanted to walk away that I described that era of our work, that era of our life. We were operating under this mantra where we said, 
and this is described in the book, love first, ask questions later. It was, it was kind of this naive 20-year-olds fresh into the war kind of way of saying, hey, what's the worst that could happen? Let's just go in and love everybody. Let God sort it out. And, you know, the, the stuff that went down with Kochar and a lot of other stuff that was happening kind of subsequent to that really thrust us into a new paradigm. And I've seen a lot of friends go through this paradigm where we set out wanting to change the world. We, um, a lot of us came out of these college type experiences where we wanted to, to change things. We wanted to, you know, rush toward the hurting and, but then the betrayal happens or our partner gets cancer or we lose a child or, you know, financial stuff sets us back. And suddenly our, our neat little 20-year-old mantras just don't work anymore. The, the love first, ask questions later. <laughs> once you start to know what, what's at stake, once you start to know what the answers are, you know, that you lose all your money, you, you lose the one you love, the God doesn't make sense, the theology doesn't make sense, they kidnap you, they throw you in jail, they slaughter your friends. Like Once those answers start arriving, that youthful naivety, that sort of first half of life energy, it just doesn't work. And that's where I see so many friends, so many younger people, we just get washed up on the shores. We just stop and we just settle in and we settle down. And that's why I think you see so many 20-year-olds, you know, rush out of college with great passion. And by the time they're late 20s, early 30s, they're just, they're just doing the thing that their parents did and actually resenting themselves for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens in the book is this angelic figure, this angelic friend kind of appears on the scene in the moment when I need her most and says, what are you going to do? Give up? Not love anymore? Or do you think there's a way here for us to press in, admit that things are scary as hell, and love anyway? Hmm. And love anyway really launches me, launches us and our, all my family, our work, launches us into what I think will, will probably be our last act of life, you know, in many ways, this, this energy that finally knows how to acknowledge the pain, finally knows how to honor and acknowledge the complexity, but, but can with integrity and experience commit itself to pressing in and, and loving anyway, which, which the youthful naive self just, you know, didn't have a concept for at that time. Yeah. I, I think you, assess that pretty much spot on that you rush out of college, you have the youthful ambition to take over the world. You realize the world's a lot messier than you thought. And at that point you're invited to either, do you love the world as it actually is? Or do you just give up and kind of cash in your chips and, you know, just, just get by. And obviously that, that presence for you, she was there. Um, In the ideal world, that's what church is. The church is like a community that says, Hey, you're going to enter the second half of life. There's a way to get past the cynicism, the the deconstruction, to reconstruct something better, to develop that second naivete, um, and, and to learn to love anyway. But if someone doesn't have that person, doesn't have that community, and uh, and they wanted to give up, what is your word of encouragement to them? What is your um, 
what is the word that you would think they need to hear? Well, one thing I think that's crucial, we put it right on the cover of the book. This is an invitation. Love anyway is an invitation. I, I don't think it's a mandate. Um, it certainly ought not be weaponized. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something we should pick up to shame people with. Hey, you're, you're a Christian, or you said that you were you know, going to be this kind of person, so you better just suck it up and get back in there and love anyway. It, it's not a tool for shame. It's not a tool for oppression. Certainly not a tool for people with power and people with platforms to you know, talk down to other people who are in more vulnerable positions and tell them what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to live. It's an invitation. It's an opportunity. And in my case... The, the angel who spoke up, this friend Aaron who spoke up and, and, and brought this, this sort of gospel-like announcement, uh, heralded this new way of life. She had the credibility to make the invitation. It wasn't weaponized. There was no shame and she had a life to back up what she was saying. Yeah. And that makes all the difference. Yeah. So to be a pastor, to be a worship leader, to be a friend, to be the church, and dare say something like that to people who are in deep hurt and deep pain and deep trauma, to, to dare speak to a victim like that, to dare ask a, a true victim to love their enemy and reconcile, to, to issue that invitation, whew, you better be careful. We better be careful. Mm-hmm. And we might should only offer that invitation to others in their point of trauma or pain if we've got the receipts to back it up. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Hmm. Okay, I think after this conversation, I feel like I'm not going to be haunted as much. So I, I, uh, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying, I feel like... I, I wonder if part of it is because when we talked a couple years ago, like you said just uh, at the beginning of the conversation, that some of the book was written uh, at an earlier part of your own process, and at the end, there's more, there's more healing and there's more you know, resolution. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I, and I, I, more than resolution, I think an important word for me is to say integration. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. I, the thing that I was maybe once ashamed of, the, the part of me that I was once embarrassed by, the, the past that I felt like I was over or had escaped from, now I don't, I don't view it with shame anymore. I don't view it with, with embarrassment. I don't want to distance myself from it. I, I actually honor it. I bless it. it. It's such an important part of who I am and how I got here. So I think that's, that's the healing that's happened. Um, I, I'm no longer punching against that past. I, I, I feel really at home with it as a part of who I am today too. Hmm. Yeah, I like integration. That's a better word. I like that. Well, I, like I was saying, I, I think that uh, th- this book is really good. And I think the the stories is really compelling. Obviously, uh, there are not a lot of books about people who've done kind of what you've done. So uh, the story itself is novel, but more than that, I think there's it's it's very substantive. And uh, yeah, I think people should go get a copy of it. And uh, Jeremy, I do appreciate uh, appreciate the time. This has been good. 
Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>